you'd like to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Again, as we looked at Daniel chapter 10 last week, we noticed that really Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are one complete unit. As it says in chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, this is the last of Daniel's communication to us through the book. Because 10, 11, and 12 are all is one vision. As you remember, there was a vision that happened in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel interpreted that one. Then we don't find till chapter 7 Daniel himself getting a vision. Daniel gets a vision in chapter 7, not, not another person, he himself. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and now chapter 10 is the fourth and the final vision. By this point in the story of Daniel's life, he's between 87 and 90 years old. He's an older gentleman, okay? And he, is get, he gets a glimpse, something different than he's had before, because chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 10, is showing us the battle that is not just with flesh and blood, that it's actually a spiritual battle. If you would, well, you don't have to turn there, but just write this down, Second Kings chapter uh, 6. Verse 8, there's a story of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 8. That's very interesting. It says in verse 8, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. So there's a war going on. And we find that in the story, what's happening is, Elisha is the prophet of Israel. And Elisha is giving information to the king of Israel. So every time the king of Syria wants to do something, Elisha is like one step ahead because he's already told the king of Israel what's going to happen. And this is really frustrating the king of Syria. In fact, verse 12 says this, the prophet who is in Israel, this is the prophet, or, excuse me, this is the servant, verse 12, uh, the servant said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, there's an informant. Well, no, it's because Elisha is a prophet. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. By the way, he wants to kill him. Verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning, now this is Dothan. And what happens is the king finds out where he is, and he surrounds the town. And the servant of God arose early and went out. And there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, that's Elisha, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What do you mean? Just you and I. And I see all these chariots. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord... I pray, open his eyes, that's his, Elisha's servant's eyes, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's a spiritual battle. And sometimes our eyes are focused on just the physical. And when it comes to chapter 10, that's what we're dealing with here. We are talking about a spiritual battle that is being played out on the earth. And so chapter 10 is really the preparation of the prophet Daniel. At the end of his life, God gives him a glimpse 
of what's going on behind the veil, as it were, in the spiritual realm. In fact, we found Daniel praying and mourning, it says, verse 2, for three weeks, 21 days. And on the 24th day of the first month. By the way, in between here, this is what was going on, because in the Jewish calendar, Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles would have happened. Now that's only important because even in the, the joyousness uh, that that brought because of remembering of all that God had done, Daniel decided only to do the minimal. He didn't completely fast, but it says that he fasted from all the extras, the pleasant foods, verse 2. But anyways, then Jesus, I believe it's Jesus, comes to him. That's verses 5 to what, 7, 8? And then there's, a, there's an angel. I believe there's two different people being referred to up to verse 10. Verse 10, and he saw, suddenly a hand touched me. I believe that's the angel that, that, uh, that speaks throughout the rest of this chapter. And this angel, again, you'd be terrified. Any of us would. Verse 11 says, O, o Daniel, man, greatly beloved. In other words, Daniel, everything's okay. You're greatly beloved. That appears three times in Scripture that Daniel is referred to as greatly beloved. But then he pulls the uh, curtain back in verse 13 and talking about, well, let's go to verse 12. Then he said, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand. Understand what? Understand what was going to happen to your people, the Jews, and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard. You were praying and, and God was hearing, though at the moment God had not answered. By the way, you ever pray and you feel like God's not hearing? He's just, he's listening. And that's what the angel tells Daniel. He understands. To humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. In other words, in response to your prayer. And then he pulls the veil. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's a demon. A demon that is working in the government of Persia. Withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, that's Michael the archangel, came to help me. By the way, you know that it's a demon and not a, a person because a person could have not withstood, you know, the angel, right? So it had to have been a demon. So this is the spiritual warfare. And Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. The kings, by the way, are the human. See, when you get to the, when it says the prince of the kingdom of Persia, I believe that's a demon. When it's the second part of verse 13, when it says the kings of Persia, those are the actual people, the physical people that we study as far as the, the kings of Persia. What he's getting at is this, even within government, especially within government, there is this spiritual battle going on as far as where that direction of the government is going to be going. And then verse 14, Now I've come to, to make you understand, now again, because he was praying for understanding, that's what we read earlier, what will happen to your people in the latter days. That's what Daniel was concerned about. What's going to happen to our people? What is going to happen to the Jews? And so we see in chapter 10 the role of demonic powers that are resisting God's will. And we also see the unfallen angels and how they are seeking to accomplish God's will. And this is moving us to chapter 11, which I put in your outline is the longest, the last, the longest, and the most detailed prophecy of the entire book. This is actually the longest one. Some have said this is the most important one. 
And that's what moves us. By the way, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, gives us one final. Actually, you could include this in, ch- in chapter 10. It says, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, this is Gabriel speaking, even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And I think the him there might be Michael. The idea is this. He's just given the illustration that I was, I was being um, uh, opposed by the demon and Michael came to help me and then he, he seems when chapter 11 verse 1 he seems to change and say and I actually helped Michael stood up to confirm and strengthen him I think the him there is Michael again just going back to there is spiritual warfare there's demonic warfare being played out that's why you, you know what we know what this whole thing should drive you to do pray because sometimes we think oh let's get out the vote well you can get out the vote but just understand, the bigger warfare is the spiritual side. See, Satan has a plan of what he wants the United States to do. Satan has a plan of what he wants Iran to do. Satan has a plan of what he wants Israel to do, right? Satan has his plan. God has his plan. By the way, what is the plan? Put it down in one sentence. Destroy Israel. That's what the plan is. Okay, it's always been that. It will always be that. That's why when people say Israel is not part of the situation, that, that has been the fight all these years, right? Ever since Abraham, God makes a promise and he says, I'll, I'll fulfill it. You know what Satan wants to do? Destroy it before he can fulfill it. And all the, the, the demonic and everything, um, again, it's destroying people. But when it comes to the nations, it's destroy Israel. Why is it? And I always, you know, we've been saying it. Why is it this little piece of land less than new, the size of New Jersey when, you know, Islam has all this other land around them? Why is it that they have to... It is demonic because Satan wants to destroy God's plan, which is Israel will be in the end and Jesus Christ will protect Israel in the end. But if they're totally gone, then the plan has been... Um, has been uh, thwarted okay thwarted okay so let's go to chapter 11 by the way if you could turn that on code i'm going to try to oh it is on great <laughs> we're going to by the way work on this i, I got to get because i want to do more powerpoints then i can show you cartoons and everything else no <laughs> mine is not working can you we just bought a new program but i wasn't able to get it all ready to go all right, as we go to chapter 11, it basically breaks down neatly into three parts. And the reason I wanted to show you this first uh, thing from chapter 9, is it working or? Aha, now I have my laser. Do you see my laser? That's kind of small, but you can see it. Now, as we go through chapter 11 today, I wanted to show you, this is what we saw in chapter 9. Remember, I, I, I told you it was like the backbone of prophecy. It was verses 24 to 27, and it was the weeks. Remember, seven weeks, which is seven times seven, and 49 years, and 434 years, and we've established all that. There was this huge gap of time in that prophecy that wasn't being spoken of, which we call what? The church age. Because sometimes God gives us points of reference, but we're not told exactly, um, you know, we think it's sequential because we don't see, as it were, think of it this way, like a mountain ridge. You know, you go and you look at a mountain ridge and you see the first big mountain, you say, boy, that's a really... And then look at the next one right behind it. But then you get to the first mountain range and you realize the next one is miles away. Well, prophecy sometimes is like that. You see the first mountain ridge, 
time frame, but you don't realize the next mountain range is way thousands of years later because this represents the tribulation period that is yet still future. Church age, this has been going on for 2,000 plus years. Now, I only bring this particular one up for this. As we're looking at chapter 11, we're starting right here, okay? What God is doing is he's taking us back through Gabriel the angel, because he's the messenger, and God is going to tell Daniel, let me give you some information of what's going to happen to your people from right here to about right here, 165 B.C., okay? He's going to be talking about the, the empire. By the way, over here was Babylonian empire. Then Alexander's decree came in the first year. No, excuse me, I am off. Wait a second, wait, wait, wait. Let me back up. I, I just told you some wrong information. He's going to back us up to here. It's 535 B.C. When, when this is being written. And it's going to carry us all the way up to about right here, 165. Okay? Yeah. I, I wasn't, I'm not thinking correctly. This, this started with Nehemiah. But the point is, is this. Over here was Babylonian Empire... Then the Persians came and destroyed, and Daniel went from a Babylonian empire into the Persian empire. So you got the Persian empire. Next one is going to be what, what empire? Greece, right, which is this right here. And then ultimately Rome, right here, Roman empire. And then, but the point is, is God is going to, as it were, give us a piece of information. Say, okay, this is what's going to be happening. Why? Because Daniel was asking, what's going to happen to my people? And this is, the, this is really the, the summary of it all. Your people, Daniel, are, are going to continue to suffer. See, that was the last thing Daniel wanted to know. But the point was this. God's already saying ahead of time, there's going to be Persian king after Persian king, and then there's going to be Greek after Greek, and along this way there's going to be these constant conflicts with your people, Israel. Oh, yes, they're going back into the land, but they're not in safety yet. In fact, they won't be in safety until right here. Right after the tribulation, Christ comes back. Now, finally, the Prince of Peace is on this earth. Israel's safe. So, the way that this chapter 11 breaks up is this. You're going to have a bunch of Persian kings, and then Greek, which starts with Alexander the Great. Then you're going to have Antiochus Epiphanes right here, which is the guy that offered the, uh, the, the pig on the, uh, the Jewish altar and desecrated it. And then it says in the end of times, and he basically jettisons all the way over to right here. So again, the church age is, age is completely missing here, but what he wants to do is he wants to walk Daniel through and he says, listen, there's going to be king after king, and then it's going to turn to Greek, and then it's going to be Epiphanes. We find this now that we're looking back in history. And then he, he limits this whole thing and goes right over to here in the end of times and really talks about the Antichrist. That's all found in chapter 11. Okay, let's look at the immediate future. Go to verse 2. And through this whole thing, though, though I just said, Israel is going to suffer, but Israel will also be protected through the suffering. See, she's going to suffer, but she's protected. She's not going to be completely destroyed. Oh, they tried to destroy her in so many different ways. Dispersion, palma, palma? what's that word? Uh, pomegranate? Not pomegranate. No, it's, it's where they specifically, they say it's a specific word for the Jew, where, the, where over time they've tried to extinguish communities. It starts with a P-O-M, and I forget what it... 
That's it right there. Thank you. Pogrom, that's it. You get the candy bar. No. Let's look at the immediate future. Tough years for the Jews, uh, David Jeremiah said. Tough years for the Jews. This carries you from verse 5 to verse 35. I'm kind of jumping around, but actually verse, verse 2, excuse me, to 35. The tough years for the Jews. But I, I, I put in my outline the immediate future. The immediate. The immediate future. These are things that have already happened. Again, James Boyce wrote in his commentary... He says, speaking of this particular passage, from verse 2 to 35, he writes, quote, This is the chief reason that the liberal school... Now, the liberals would be those who who say that the word of God is not true. And he said this, This is the chief reason the liberal school, those who do not believe in the perfection of God's word, wants to put the writing of Daniel... Instead of where he's, he wrote it, he wrote it in 535. If it's the third year of, of, of uh, Cyrus, that's 535, right around that time frame. But they want to put it not in 535, but in the 160 BCs, the Maccabean period. In other words, they want to say this. This is what the liberals say. Instead of, say, uh, instead of agreeing that Daniel was written in, in 535, we want to take it 370 years later. Let's get it into the 165 B.C. Why? Because the liberals look at that passage, and some things are so obvious what's happening and who the characters are. They say this, how could anybody possibly have known how it was going to happen with the Persians and then Alexander the Great with the Greeks right up to Antiquity Epiphanes. In other words, one of the main reasons why they discount Daniel as being a prophetic book is because when they go to chapter 11, they look and they say, how could anyone know the future and be so specific like Daniel wrote? And, and our response would be what? Because God knows the end from the beginning, right? So this is the chapter why so many of the, uh, so many of the liberal uh, theologians have rejected that this is a prophetic book and they try to get it to 165, which means all those events had already happened, and say, no, it's not a prophetic book, it's a historical book. But we say, no, it was written in 535, it is a prophetic book. See, that's like someone saying, well, we're in 2013, right? Let's go back to the year 1643. Louis XIV was king of France. And let's say somebody goes to Louis XIV and says this. And there's going to be a guy that comes in the year 213. There's going to be a guy that comes and he's going to be a president. And he's going to rule a nation called the United States. And he's going to have a whole lot of problems in the year 2013 because of scandal. You'd say, what are you talking about? That was 370 years ago, 1643. See, that's what we're talking about here. From the time Daniel was actually written to the time all these things, it took 371 years to fulfill. The liberal says, listen, there's no way because it's so specific, there is no way anybody would have known. And we just say, thank you, Lord, for showing us. So this time frame goes through Darius and Cyrus and, and Alexander the Great this entire time. Okay, look at verse 2. Now, when I, now I tell you the truth. Now this is the truth. This is Gabriel speaking down. I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. This is the Persian time frame. 
Again, Daniel has just entered it. Within the last three years is when Babylonian Empire was destroyed by Cyrus. Now Persia is over Babylon. They, they are the ruling power. But he says three more kings. include, In other words, there was Cyrus, now there's three more. And we find in history that three more kings happened. Cambius, which was actually Cyrus' son, he, he reigned for about six years to about 523. I don't want to throw so much at you. Pseudo-Smyrnes. By the way, this guy was interesting because he actually ruled, but he actually wasn't part of the lineage. What it was is he looked exactly like the other king. The other king died, and this guy took over for a short time being an imposter. But he did rule. Oh, you can shut that off. Here, let me... Can I control this? I like the controller when it comes to the TV, and I also like it when it comes to the... Then there was a third ruler, Darius the Great. He was probably one of the most famous. And he killed off the second guy, and he reigned for about 63 years. Long time. Or maybe, it wasn't quite that, 40-some years. But anyways, Darius the Great. Look at verse 2. And the fourth shall be far richer than them all by his strength through his riches. And there was a fourth king. His name was Xerxes. He's the man... Ahasuerus, that was his other name that we find in the book of Esther. Okay? Ahasuerus. And he reigned till about 464. Now again, you're not going to remember all those names. But the point is this. This text says three more kings and then there's going to be the most powerful. And that's exactly what happened. Three more kings and the most powerful was, was Ahasuerus. Now the, what is it? I wish these guys were like Bill and Bob. The significant thing about this king, though, Xerxes, was that just like the other Persian kings, they tried to expand their, their empire. And so what he did is he crossed over. Let me see. What's the next? Uh, could, you, could you put up the next slide? And so this guy, which is the Persian empire, he tried to go over to Macedonia. This is where Greece and all that is, okay? In other words, he was trying to expand his empire. He did, it was unsuccessful. The first, he went over, he was defeated by the Greeks. The Persians had tried to conquer Greece earlier under Darius the Great and had been defeated at Marathon. In the second invasion, and basically the second time, he just brought everybody he had. I mean, it was a magnificent invasion, they estimate over two and a half million men. I mean, they were putting all their cards on the table as where he was going to expand, go from here, and then, you know, this is going towards Europe. What happened was the Greeks held them off. In fact, many of those two million men were either taken, uh, you know, taken prisoner or killed. And the, the only amount that actually ended up going back was about 100,000 men. So out of about 200 million, or 2 million, 100,000. So there was a, a massive amount of, of uh, death and destruction. And after this massive defeat, Persia was, no, it was almost like terminally going down from that point on. Now, this is why I'm saying this. Because the text says there's going to be three and plus one, that's it. Well, actually, there was other Persian kings. But after that massive defeat, the, the Persian Empire was going down very, very quickly. It just took a few you know, more years because they had lost their firepower, as it were. Look at verse, the last part of verse 2. He shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. What do you mean? Well, 
Greece remembered the invasion. And it wasn't until another hundred years later that Alexander um, came on the scene. But one of the reasons Alexander the Great, and he was considered one of the most magnificent, if not the best leader of all time, military leader, wanted to go this way. One of the main reasons was he remembered the stories a hundred years later when Xerxes tried to take over Greece. And he was going to destroy them. I mean, he was just going to ravage them and that's what he did so and so as the scripture says he shall stir up all against the realm of greece in other words greece is going to remember 140 140 years later in 334 uh, that's when uh, the campaign happened look at the next part verse 3 then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. I believe verse 3 is now going from the Persian Empire, Xerxes' Empire. I think verse 3 now is, is, is 100 and some years later, and now we're talking about the Greeks. Who's this mighty king? It's interesting that both conservative and liberal uh, uh, Bible students all agree on one, one thing, and that verse 3 is talking about Alexander the Great. This is Alexander. He's the mighty king. He shall arise. He shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And that's exactly what you see with Alexander the Great in 334. I mean, it was like Blitzkrieg. He was the founder, as it were, of Blitzkrieg that the Germans used. And he was a mighty king. If you go to the next slide... Uh, Again, by the way, the Persian right here, and this is Israel over here, and this is like Hillensport is right around there. It's not actually right here. And the idea is this. The Persians always stayed on this side. Once they went into this side, you know, they declared war, as it were, with Greece. And by the way, this was Alexander's route that he took. Right here is Macedonia. Here's where he you know, started, and he went through and went through modern-day Turkey, down through Israel, over to Egypt. Then he went back through Syria. And what is he doing? See, he was, he was getting all the land and everything that the Persians had gotten, because that was the Persian Empire. And then he worked his way through all the way to India. And you know what he did after he went and he conquered India? He wept. Because in his mind, there was no more land to conquer. What a baby. No. <laughs> It says he wept. Many, many uh, commentaries. Have, <laughs> he was so frustrated. And then he died at age 32. He was very young. Died of malaria and alcoholism. He could control the world, but not himself. So he's the mighty king of verse 3. Look at the next verse, though. Verse 4, And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And by the way, we have seen this in Daniel four other or three other times. Chapter 2, verse 32. Remember, uh, Greek was the, the legs of bronze, right? If you go over to chapter 8, verse 5, just turn over real quick. Chapter 8, verse uh, 5. By the way, you see them in chapter 7, verse 6, but 8, verse 5. I believe it's 5. No, verse, excuse me, 21. I, I'm in the wrong. You, you, we saw this before. He's, um, and the male goat represents Greece as the kingdom of Greece, and, and the large horn that is between its eyes is, is its first king. That's Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn, 
As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And that's exactly what happened when, when Alexander died. His four generals divided up that area, but they were none of them were as powerful as Alexander the Great. And so that's what chapter 11, verse 4 is referring to. And he is arisen, and his is going to be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven. There's going to be four, and we find out that there's four generals. But look, at there's some new information given in verse 4, but not among his posterity. See, he's going to die, but... By the way, if I was a general, I mean, if I was Alexander the Great, you know what I want happen when I die? Pass it along to my kids. But the Bible is very clear. None of his kids are going to get anything, not according to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, what he wanted, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. And, and we find that that's what happened. Do we have a next picture? Uh, next picture, that's just the root. And this is what we find. Four generals... Cassandra, 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 or whatever it is, Lycamas, uh, Seleucus, and Ptolemies. I do know that's how you say that, Ptolemies. And that's what happened right here. The, these were the kingdoms. One, two, three, four. Notice this, the Ptolemies and Seleucus. Seleucus, whatever it is. I wish it was Bob and Bill. But... Notice that this is Syria, this is Israel, this is Egypt. It's divided. Because he brings it up here. Um, Look at verse 5. By the way, verses 5 to 20 is about 200 years. And the idea is this. 200 years of conflict, and the conflict, again, is right here. These guys aren't even in the picture. It's right here, the Ptolemies and Seleucus. They're dynasties. These are, because this is going to be considered uh, the kings of the north, and this is the kings of the south. Why? Because it's all in relation to one place. Where do you think that place is? Israel. That's, see, God doesn't care about all this other stuff. He made a promise to a man, and he's going to keep it. Yeah, we're way over here. It's, we're non-consequential. We're only reason, we are only one purpose, how we relate to Israel. I know that sounds kind of demeaning to America. But when it comes to this prophecy thing, it's all about Israel. Oh, Israel doesn't matter. Is your word good? God's word's better. Right? Okay. So verses 5 to 20 in chapter 11 is about 200 years. I mean, you're, and by the way, I could bore you to... I could make it so that you never want to come back to church. Tell me when you're going to be done with Daniel. I've had that a little bit. And I, you know, I want you to get a picture and without, you know, and there's, there's always this balance because some of you are like, yeah, give me the facts, man. One person, happened to be our associate, told me, sounds like a prophecy class you're teaching. Okay, I'll lighten up. Yeah, I don't want to bore you to the point, but I do want you to get it. Maybe let's just get a couple of things, okay? Verse five, the king of the south, the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies, right here. Verse 5, by the way, he's referring to Ptolemy the first. So become strong. He did. As well as one of his princes. And he, the prince, shall gain power over him and have dominion. That's exactly what happened. The guy that took over here used to be this guy's like um, second in command. 
Well, when the, when the kingdom was divided, this guy, the prince, the lesser, became the greater. He actually, he actually had a greater uh, area than the original general. Even though all these are four generals, that's what he's referring to in verse 5 when it says, um, as well as one of his princes, and he, the prince, shall gain power over him. That's exactly what happened. Exactly. And have dominion. And his dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, now this is sometime later, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north, the Seleucids, to make an agreement. And that's exactly what happened. A few years later, there was this political marriage. Her name was Bernice. And it basically was the daughter of this guy who was in control at that time, came to the north and decided in, in order to bring these two uh, empires together, had a political marriage. They agreed. By the way, what's going to happen? To make an agreement. That's that political. And she shall not retain the power of her authority. Something's going to happen and, and the marriage is going to fail. And neither he nor his authority shall stand. Well, actually, what happened? And this is the only illustration I'm going to give you because of time. And like I said, I don't want to exhaust you out. This is what happened. Totally specific. This is one of the reasons why liberals say this book could not have been written in 165 BC. It had to be history. It could not be prophecy. The daughter, again, was named Bernice. And the king of the north. And let's see here. She was the daughter of Ptolemy II. Again, not the original. It was his son. And she married Antiochus II. It was a political marriage and alliance to resolve tensions between south and north. Antiochus had to divorce his first wife. By the way, do you think that ticked her off? But there, was, there were hatred and friction, as one can imagine. And after the death of Ptolemy II, in other words, the father, Antiochus divorced Bernice. Okay, what happened was this. Father dies, and this guy decides, I'm going to go back to my first wife. And then divorces his second wife, Bernice, to go back to his first wife. Don't bring two women into the home. Her name was Laodice. Well, Laodice, by this point, says, you're not going to ever do that to me again. And ends up killing Bernice, her kids, her husband, I mean, and then killed her husband that married her for the second time. Just basically wiped out everybody. She was what you call a bitter, angry woman. <laughs> now, that's what Daniel is hearing when it says this in the second part of verse 6. To make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. You better believe it because she, she not only got divorced, she got killed, poisoned. And neither he nor his authority shall stand, he being her husband. He's dead, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, even her, her, everyone that came with her got killed, and with him who begot her, that's her father, and with him who strengthened her in those times, which I think is her husband. So the point is, as Daniel's hearing, uh, man, everyone's, well, again, he doesn't know the people, but now looking back over history, it's exactly right. Okay, yeah, that person, political, she's died, you know, and all that happens. By the way, when John Calvin wrote his commentary, in just this chapter alone, he took 40 pages to show all the sequential specificness of prophecy that was fulfilled. That's why I say, you know, you don't want me to go through 40 pages of John Calvin's commentary. That would even put me to sleep. But, you know, 
But the point is this. Oh, well, let's go to verse 7. Let's go to the next, next one. But then from a branch of her roots, now that could either be her own particular family, it could be, that phrase could be used of brother, sister, or her own children. It turns out to be her brother. It says, from a branch of her roots, that's her brother, one shall arise in his place. In other words, uh, the, the northern, you know, going towards north. Who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, so he's coming from the south to the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt. This guy who comes from the south is going to destroy, it's going to be a relation of Bernices. Comes, destroys and takes huge amount of uh, booty, as it were. Booty? I shouldn't probably use that word in this day and age. <laughs> no, got to use a different word. Give me another word here, guys. Treasures. Yeah, things change in America. We've got to be, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. If anybody was sleeping up to this point, they're awake. Anyways. All these treasures carry away their gods captive to Egypt and their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. And that's exactly what happened. Her brother goes up, destroys the northern Syrian kingdom, looted its temples because they were pagan. It wasn't the Jewish. And he, this is what they, they record him taking. 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 idols. He just literally ravished the land and brought it back to the south because of what they had done to his sister. And that's what verse 7 is talking about. The branch of a root shall rise in his place who shall come with an army. Okay? Enter the fortress of the king of the north. It's exactly the way. And so that's basically what you see up to about verse 21. You see these just different kings. And then it goes into Antiquitus the Great, and we won't cover that. The third uh, division is C, the history of Antiquitus Epiphanes. If you go to verse 21, again, there's these struggles, these struggles. The idea is this, Daniel, your people are going to be struggling, but they're going to be protected from extinction. They're going to struggle, they're going to suffer, but they will not be extinguished. And in his place, verse 21, shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peacefully and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And actually, we find that this is Antiquitus Epiphanes. Now, again, we've seen, by the way, Epiphanes means this, Antiquitus, the glorious one. That's how, he, that's how he looked at himself. And we saw this character in, uh, oh, in earlier chapters, like chapter 8, okay? But the point is, is we've seen him. He is the forerunner of Antichrist. And he comes in, we get new information because we find that at the beginning of his, his uh, reign, he, he, he basically is a smooth talker. And he's up here, and, uh, you know, he's able to, um, oh, excuse me, he's up here, and he's going to go into Egypt, and he's going to keep, uh, he does it either two or three different times, he invades Egypt, but basically at this point, e- Egypt being Ptolemy's, they're not really on guard. It, it was, they were very lax and they were very corrupt at this point, the southern kingdom. And so he's able to march in and march in, and by intrigue, he just continues to basically loot them, okay? 
But an interesting story happens. I think it's either a second or third time through. He is stopped, not by the Ptolemies, but by the upcoming empire, which is Rome. And Rome has this little, uh, this garrison, as it were, in Cyprus. And instead of just meeting the Ptolemies, he actually meets the Roman general of Rome. Okay? And so this guy is coming down, and he's going to, uh, you know, invade and loot the Ptolemies for a, a second or third time. And this is what the story goes on. This is from Boyce, actually. Antiochus was on his way to invade Egypt again, no doubt expecting an easy victory that he had enjoyed before. But he was intercepted by a Roman fleet under the command of Populus. And this was a stern general. And this general told him, you need to go back. (laughs) Um, He wanted to invade. He wanted, you know, by the way, his army is watching this whole thing. And, and this is what the guy does, Populus, the, the Roman general. He literally draws a circle around Antiochus. Because what, what, the guy, what Antiochus had said is, listen, let me go back and like basically confer with my generals, and then I'll make a decision whether I'm willing to go back or not. And he said, no, because I know what you're going to do. You're going to go back and raise an army and then attack us. So he says, you have, once you leave the circle, you have to make made your mind up. Well... He didn't have an army there, so he had to capitulate. He was embarrassed. He was a very proud, arrogant man. And so he left and went back. By the way, that's what verse 21 means. No, excuse me, verse 30 when it says, For the ships of Cyprus shall come against him. These were, these were soldiers, and they were from Cyprus. That's what history tells us. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who for, uh, re, f, he will show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, and forces uh, shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. They shall uh, take away the daily sacrifices, and the place there will be the uh, abomination and desolation. In fact, if you're in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus refers to the abomination and desolation. In, in 24, verse 6, 15, he says this. Jesus says, Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by, the Daniel, of, of, of by Daniel the prophet. But this is not the Antichrist. This is a forerunner. And what he does is this. He goes back and he is so angry he just ravages. You know, it's like when you're upset and you come home from work, what do you do? Kick the dog. Well, he just kicked his people. Those were actually under his rule. Okay? It kind of would go like this. But he just... And so he, he, he basically shut the temple down. And, and when it was all said and done, he offered a swine and threw the, the, the juice on the altar, which totally desecrated it, and actually sent up, set up an image of Zeus and said, that's what you're going to worship killed thousands and thousands of Jews, um, took thousands and thousands off into captivity. And anytime you ever mention the name Antiochus Epiphanes to any Jew, that would just bring like, you know, the Alamo. So the abomination and desolation. And that really carries us up right to verse 36 as we have to end. And then it says this, 
Verse 35, and some of those understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white. What do you mean? Well, there's still going to be some who are true believers. Until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Until the time of the end. In fact, you see the time of the end in chapter 12, verse 1. (coughs) No, excuse me. Verse 4, the time of the end. And you're going to see it one other. Oh, verse 40, at the time of the end. So chapter 11, verse 35, verse 40, and chapter 12, verse 4, the time of the end, the time of the end, the time of the end. And the time of the end is actually, could I have that next slide? Is again, this mountain peak. Because this, as it were, let's say for today, this is, disregard the toes and things. But what he's talking about, let's say this is Antiquity Epiphanies. And he says the time of the end, and that's going to be, well, Daniel didn't know this, but actually in the text, in the, now that we have history, thousands of years ahead of time in the future. Thousands and thousands of years in the future. And that's going to be the time of the final Antichrist. Because Antiochus was only a picture, a type of the final Antichrist. Because what is the final Antichrist going to do? Same exact scenario. Walk into the temple, set him himself, and set, except putting up, he's not going to put up the idol Zeus. He's going to put himself there and say, worship me. That's the time of the end. So between verse 35, which happened in AD 165, and verse 36, the willful king, that's the Antichrist. That's thousands of years in the future. Thousands of years. And that's really verse 36 all the way to chapter 12, verse 4. (coughs) We know is that 70th week of Daniel. Remember Daniel, 490 years We have one final seven-year period, and it actually breaks down perfectly, which we don't have time to see today. But the point is is this. The scriptures, as you even look back, it's so precise. And Let me just draw out a few conclusions. First of all is this. God is God. Man, God is God. Because God is the one that knows the end from the beginning. He's the one that wrote the book. By the way, not only is God God, but he's given us his word. The only way this could be perfect is because God is behind it. He's the one that has told us. But the other thing is this. God is a God who keeps his promises. He told Abraham, I will. You will be a great nation. And you see it throughout scripture and every piece is being put together and understand that Israel is a major part of the end times. God is a promise keeper. And if he kept his promises, and if his word is true, which we just studied, then all his word is true come in future. The time is coming. I remember this guy. He he was a big... He lived in uh, Long Island, and and he wanted this one particular barometer. And finally, after many, many years, he was able to find the specific one he wanted. And uh, the day came, and he got it, and doggone it, that thing was broke. It showed hurricane. And he looked at that thing. He said, why is this showing hurricane? And he like shook the... Still showed hurricane. Couldn't get that. He was so frustrated. In fact, he wrote somewhat of a nasty letter to the manufacturer. And he said the next day, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop it in the mail. I don't care. I'm frustrated. I've wanted this thing for a number of years. I got it and it's broke. Hurricane. Dropped in the mail that morning, went to work the next, you know, came home that night, and the barometer was missing. So was his house. 
the hurricane had come. The barometer was right. I look at that, and I think of that story, and I think, you know, what does the Bible say? He's coming. <laughs> He's coming. Things are all playing out. Sometimes people shake the book. Can't be. No way. Hard truth. Still remains truth. Don't be the guy that comes home, not only missing the barometer, but his house as well. We need to trust what God has said. And we need to follow it. And we need to remember that God is God. And God has written his word in this book. And every promise in this book is being fulfilled. Either has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. We may not understand all the specifics. Daniel could not have told you, oh yeah, that's Ptolemy's the second. But then as history plays itself out, you look back and you say, that's exactly what God said. That's how we need to remember. We don't see God, but we trust every one of his promises because he's the one that made those promises. And so, and I always go back to this one major one. What about John 1.12? Let's make sure that, so I'll just read it for you because that way you know that I'm reading exactly what scripture says. As many as received him, to them he gave what? the right to become children of God. That's what he promised. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what will he do for us? He'll make us one of his children. Now, can I feel that? Not always. But I trust that. Eyes of faith, right? Eyes of faith. Can we, all, can we know for sure that Jesus Christ is coming back? I haven't seen Christ. But what? He said he is. He said he is. And so we can trust it. Eyes of faith eyes of faith. How's your eyes of faith? Are you walking by faith or are we walking by sight? Sometimes I think we walk by sight. But again, God says, walk by faith. Know that I am the true God. Know that my word is true and that every promise I have promised, I will fulfill. Let's stand as we worship him.